Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality and geekdom by celebrating the diverse and their accomplishments. We're on the Relay FM Podcasting Network, and I'm your host, Aline Sims. Today, I am joined by a repeat guest, and a link to her previous episode will be in the show notes, Lisa Schmeiser. Lisa, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so glad to be back here. I'm always excited to podcast with you. I know. I, I've lost. I've lost count on what we've podcasted on, but I know they've been some of my favorite ones, especially when we did Jessica Jones. Yeah, that was good, um, and that was actually my second. So I think I did a game show episode on the Incomparable Network, and then mm-hmm. I said something about doing Jessica Jones, and Jason was like, "You know, you could come do that on the Incomparable," and I was like, "Okay." And now you can't get rid of me. I just, I just, I just show up. All we the are the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing. It's one of my favorite uh, favorite networks. But anyway, today we were going to talk about a couple of very deep topics. <laughs> yeah, there were because um, I do want to tie this back into tech um, as much as I can. And I am a tech reporter. So one of the things I thought we could chat about first would be the Internet of Things and who it seems to be aimed at. Uh, I've been to a couple trade shows this year, and I went to one last week, uh, Internet of Things World, which was kind of eye-opening and built on things I had seen from CES. I thought we could talk about Internet of Things and some of the social questions that I am beginning to see bubble up. And then if we have time, we can talk about journalism and um the ways it's beginning to fragment online. Yeah. And what that and what that means for audiences. Yeah. So it, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if that's too much, we can always circle around to my little pony at the end of it. I, I think we should. <laughs> There's also okay. always Steven Universe too. I don't know if that's something that's popular at your house, but it it is at my house of thirty somethings. But <laughs> you know, I've heard a lot of good things about it. We haven't gotten into it yet. Uh, he, at the risk of sounding like a big old hippie, we try to keep um, TV to our daughter. Well, we try we try to keep our daughter's screen time um, fairly. It's like it's like a three times a week thing, mm-hmm. and uh, we're trying to get her used to the idea that we regulate when she uses a screen, either a tablet or a, or a or TV. Because once she starts school, and we have to start looking at screen time for assignments and things like that. We're going to need to make sure we've normalized behavior where it's like, yeah, mom and dad can see what I'm doing. Mom and dad get to drive the wheel. So nice. <laughs> yeah. Thinking ahead. I can make a case for Steven universe. Um, and I will, mm-hmm. um, and we'll, we'll save that to the end so we can end on a later notes. Excellent. So let's start with the internet of things. First of all, what does the term, the internet of things mean? Um, it's a, mar- my perception is that it's a marketing term. And the reason I look at it that way first is because way back when I was covering this stuff in the Audis, um for Investors Business Daily, it was actually just called machine-to-machine communication. And this is back when um, all the quote-unquote smart money was on RFIDs. And let's stop for a minute and think about the last time anyone referred to RFIDs in the wild. <laughs> well, there are the, the commercials for the skimming anti-skimming wallets that you see. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. but the idea was that RFIDs would create, like back then the idea was that RFIDs would create basically the ability to track and network any sort of object and you could transmit data, things like that. That sort of died out, but I got the opportunity then to write a lot of really interesting stories about how, say, FedEx had mastered machine-to-machine communications where they could have the machines that 
they would have machines at the doors of the warehouse that monitored vehicular traffic, and those machines would actually speak to machines on the shelves where packages were so that they could correlate the data point. You know, this truck just drove over the, the, the just drove through the tracking beam. They could correlate that against, I'm report a machine, this is great, I'm missing five packages from these five shelves. And this way they could very precise, they, they had very precise data sets for what was moving around when. And their goal was to eventually automate very nearly everything about the process of moving packages from point A to point B. And that was fascinating. And then there was more machine to machine stuff in agriculture as well, because you now have uh, major pieces of equipment that basically operate independently of humans. And they do everything from determine water, watering schedules for fields to seeding at different times of the year to fertilizing to things like that. Where it's shifted now, it's called Internet of Things so that people will buy stuff. Mm-hmm. Because um, if you went to someone and said, a network transmitter inside your thermostat is going to talk to your phone and control the climate, you don't have to do a thing, people be weirded out. But if you say, your phone is going to talk to your sprinklers and your lights, then everyone's like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and they think it's adorable. And presumably they buy really expensive equipment. Mm. And I also think Internet of Things is a subtle rhetorical nudge at people to start thinking of the household objects in their house as necessary and needing to be connected. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because you're like, it's the Internet of Things. And then then you're supposed to, in theory, you're supposed to start thinking, well, why isn't my washing machine telling me when it's done or things like that? So That's so, and this is maybe why the Internet of Things is not a term that works well for me, because yeah. I'm at a point in my life where I'm actively trying to purge stuff. Yeah. And so when I hear the Internet of Things, I'm like, I do not need more things in my life. I am I'm thinged out. Yeah. Everyone's been reading Marie Kondo. They don't want <laughs> they don't want anything in their life that doesn't spark joy. Right. Or that I have to dust. Yeah. And um, I think that's why you're seeing the ascendance of smart as in smart home, Mm. smart car, smart appliance, is that people are trying to move away from the thing association, but they still want an industry label. And some of the rhetorical and and some of the pushback you're talking about, I went to Internet of Things World in Santa Clara earlier this month. Mm. And um, aside from some very nice individual conversations I had with different people there, what struck me was how jumbled and incoherent the product category still is. It's like going, imagine if you went to like an internet expo in 1998 and you had um, somebody who sold FTP software next to somebody who sold a piece of software that promised to back up your bookmarks to your hard drive next to somebody who sold, sold you storage doubler next to somebody who was selling you a modem next to somebody who was selling you the worldwide. Here's the guide to the worldwide web. Mm-hmm. Like it, there was that that sense where people were still trying to define the internet and avoid hyper specialization, and that's where I think we are right now with Internet of Things is because there are people who are still trying to treat technology as a marble and not as a feature. Mm-hmm. And um, as a result, you have people who are like, "It's a sensor for making sure you don't overwater your tomatoes," and um, <laughs> it's technology as opposed to saying, "Okay, like in the." It's going to be part of a larger tool set that co- committed agriculturalists will use because they're already using technology to farm. Like water regulation and sprinklers are some of the most highly mechanized and computerized aspects of farming. So this is just being folded into that. It's nothing, it's nothing big and new. But, 
you know, there are people who are still trying to cast around for an operational metaphor and internet of things is what's fitting very poorly. Yes, it is <laughs> for some anyway. Yeah. So I think a lot about this internet of things we're creating and, you know, I, I like around my house and we have hue bulbs, we have a nest thermostat. Um, please people, if these become like hackable widely, just leave me alone. Um, so, uh, and that's the thing I worry about. I don't know how concerned other people are about it, but I worry about those things. But I also think about the hue bulbs. I mean, we have this full spectrum hue bulbs, not just the white, you know, things. So different colors and different shades and and those are what 80 bucks a pop. And I, I don't even want to disclose how many we have, you know, we purchased purchased them one at a time, but yeah. And then you have to have a smartphone or a computer or an internet connection to control these things. And that's not something that everybody has. I mean, in our circles, we kind of think of it as ubiquitous, but mm -hmm. you know, like a lot of people can't afford or don't want technologies like this in their lives. And I worry that we're, we're going to go so far afield that, you know, people are the, these thing, these things are, are the standard and it's mm -hmm. hard to find the, the not smart things. Yeah. And what, what happens to to those people we're leaving behind the people who don't have a smartphone, who don't have a computer, who don't have internet access in their house. You know, you raise a really good point. Um, when I, I talked to a really nice guy from IBM for about 45 minutes and we talked exclusively about self-driving cars and the places they were likely to work and the places they weren't. And where we ended up finding common ground, as I mentioned, I had gone to college in rural Virginia and several of my classmates had come from family farms and basically college is their rumspringa and then they go back and they run the farm, mm -hmm. you know, and the attitude is you go to the farm, you get, you, you go to the college, you get your degree in ag econ or something that is similarly useful in becoming a business person. And then you go back and you run your business. Yep. And, um, this gentleman was from rural Texas and we talked about the state of rural infrastructure as a whole, which is that the road, there's no guarantee the roads are good. Right. You know, they wash out all the time or there's livestock in the middle of them or they're frozen or it's mud. And one area that is actually getting some attention, but not as much as it needs to right now, is the is, is rural poverty in America, where, you know, you have a really thinly scattered population with very scarce resources and almost total lack of infrastructure. And it has the potential to create the kind of situation that's analogous to where America was at the beginning of the Great Depression, where you had these really harrowing images of poverty all in some parts of the country. Well, you know, the cities no doubt were hit, but they had sanitation. Mm -hmm. They still had working public transit. There were, you know, still agencies and organizations that could help people out. Um, so, you know, one of the areas I feel that the U.S. could definitely do better from a policy perspective um, and to its credit, the, the current presidential administration has been trying and has worked very aggressively with um, the FCC on this. Uh, it, they're trying to build out, you know, almost universal broadband across the country, but that's not the only part of the infrastructure that would need to be upgraded. And this is one of the things where the Internet of Things could become almost a luxury niche for very densely populated areas or exurbs where there's a lot of money and a lot of consumer demand. But then you're creating effectively like technological, like this weird 
I hate compound words like this, but it would almost be like a socioeconomic technostrata where different levels of income and access have different levels of technology. Yep. And that really affects the opportunities people are going to have. Yep. And we already see that now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm from a very rural area. I graduated, like I, I tell people my graduating class was 24 people, including me, mm-hmm. um, you know, 600 people in the town I grew up in. There is not a stoplight in the town I grew up in. The roads are not asphalt. They're uh, chip sealed. So there mm-hmm. are rocks flying everywhere. There's yeah. no, there's no brought, well, I guess they, if you have cable at your house, you can get, um, better internet, but mm-hmm. in many cases you have to pay for the cable company to lay the cable to your house. Like the last mile problem. Right. Yeah. yeah tear up the yeah. roads. Mm-hmm. Like it's there, there's like this, this huge barrier in rural America that, um, that as you say, is just, it's, it's getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. The one remediate, the one remediation effort I can imagine and it might be, and it would be interesting if we if we did this, or or um, if people or if people and companies start working towards this. Um, I roomed with a woman who was again from a small town, a tiny town of Virginia, a lot like yours. And for her last two years of high school, because um, the schools were so small and they didn't offer AP classes, she drove to a community college classroom two counties away and took the classes by satellite. Yep. And so you know, yeah, they had satellite teachers, and that got me thinking about how in Africa, um, because of, in, in some African countries, and I'm, I'm, I want to make sure that I'm differentiating between the continent of Africa and individual countries within Africa as opposed to treating it like a whole, because definitely not the case. Right. But there are some countries in Africa that um, were like, we're not going to have, they, they, they don't have the, the social capital or the financial capital to build out a broadband you know, a broadband infrastructure and they don't have the kind of culture where that that's necessary. So they've gone completely mobile when it comes to internet. Like mm-hmm. your phone is your primary way of connecting because there's a satellite network that can serve you. And they're actually doing the same thing with banking now where, because again, big banks aren't doing a whole lot of business in individual African countries. There are now payment systems that are peer to peer pay that completely eliminate banks from the situation. And so the one way I could see IoT kind of taking off is if someone were to launch a rural internet initiative that relied on satellite access. Oh, interesting. And that's that would be a model of internet access and computing that's very different from the um, model that's currently in most households now where the attitude is you have a modem that's plugged into a wireless router, but you're still dependent on being tethered to you know that copper cable <laughs> You know, if you were to go with satellite, you have weather-based conditions. Like I believe, um, I believe Chris Breen may have satellite-based. I know he's got like satellite-based television. He's talked about that being knocked out. Um, I mean, there's there's going to be weather considerations mm-hmm. and things like that. But other industries, considerably more sensitive industries like intelligence and weather and things like that, have already had to deal with weather constraints. So there's no reason why it wouldn't be able to be done. You know, in in the capacity to connect rural America, oh, oh, you know, with, with satellites in space. Yeah. Well, and that's how, like thinking about farming and that kind of thing, that's, that's how it would need to be done as, as things became more connected. But then you're talking Monsanto's about. Monsanto's already doing that. Right. Bought, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, Monsanto, Monsanto very quietly figured out a long time ago that if they could hook up with tractor makers and get weather data, then they could basically have the farmers sit down and then ping them, you know, information on what they're planting, what day of the week and when. Um, and of, of course, like the lip services, well, this helps you optimize crops, but it also covers you in case there's some sort of, uh, you know, crop failure. And you can say, well, if you had just followed our instructions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Monsanto, Monsanto is problematic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> everything is problematic. Oh, yeah. Um, so your faves are problematic, but I'm not sure Monsanto is too many people's faves. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, you know, and coming from like I think about. So my grandfather was was a farmer. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and I remember like going out to help him plant crops or 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 harvest or whatever. And um people I'm sure people didn't know I was so country, but I'm pretty <laughs> I was I was raised in rural America and mm-hmm. you know, I think about co- corn. Yeah. And raising corn and some of the stuff that Monsanto pulls with, you know, genetic engineering and suing oh, farmers yeah. when there's the inevitable cross pollination and, you know, and, and some of yeah. some of their seed ends up in farmers crops mm-hmm. when they didn't pay for it, even though the farmer didn't. And so that's where I'm like, you know, from yeah. from a familial yeah. history standpoint, it just. Um, Let it all burn. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, my when my mom first learned how to use Google, she made the mistake of not made the mistake, but she Googled for the last name Schmeiser, reasoning that because she didn't hadn't run into too many in the wild in in America, surely we'd be able to find me right off the bat. And she was actually really like surprised and kind of indignant that Percy Schmeiser's suit against Monsanto is like what oh, no. really <laughs> it's no, it was what it used to skew it skews the Google results because that was such a big deal for so long. There's this Canadian farmer named Percy Schmeiser who mm-hmm went up to court against Monsanto for years and years, precisely for what you talked about, where they were suing him for growing their their corn, even though he's like, look, I've never been a customer. It cross-pollinated into the field. This is out of my control. Yep. So, and it's just a night, it's like this bizarre Kafkaesque nightmare. Um, it's terrible. But the the thing, to, to loop it back to the Internet of Things, which, you know, has actually been in existence for quite some time under a couple different names, um, what I find weird and not weird, but what I find a little bit disturbing uh, about it right now is um, how it seems to be by and for people in some very specific social circumstances. Agreed. And those social circumstances usually don't include things like multi-generational households. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't include um, certain things like, there have been a lot of when I went to CES. There were a lot of products uh, that were predicated on oh, it's just voice commands and you can determine who it is. And I thought, are you going to think to add your children's caregivers to to this? If this is the if this is the thing that if you're supposed to be able to snap at your TV and turn on, turn off. Like, what if it's cute to people who aren't home? Your kids are there with the babysitter and they can't turn on the TV. Yep. Like, um, another friend contacted me over Twitter and said, yeah, this actually happens with our garage door opener because it's only linked to my husband's phone. So unless he's the one opening and closing the garage, we can't get into it. And that was one of the things that I saw over and over again um, was how very young, single and male skewing a lot of this technology feels right now and how it seems to be designed to offload the cognitive labor of domesticity (laughs) um, to someone else. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and I realize there are probably people who are like rolling their eyes and are like, whatever, meta filter. But um, 
<laughs> but when I saw, I saw a lot of technology that was supposed to be that, oh, this tells you when there's no milk in the house anymore, or, oh, this tells you when the baby, like the, the most egregious example I saw was in an app that linked to a sensor you put in a child's diaper. And when the sensor indicated that the diaper was wet, the app pings a phone to let you know it's time to change the diaper. And I asked the person who was marking this app at CS, I said, so does it ping all of the children's caregivers he's like no just he's like no it's a one-to-one relationship between the app and the phone it's it's one device one sensor and i said so basically the parents have to decide which one is going to get constantly pinged over changing a diaper yep so what that comes down to is that let's assume that the app is on mom's phone because mom spends more time is every time that sensor goes off, she either has to like her flow is interrupted either way. Right. Like her, her time is interrupted. Her attention is diverted. And then either she has to go take care of the labor herself or she has to delegate it. She has to do the extra work of getting someone else's attention and directing them to the task. Or you have a separate device to carry like oh well uh, we'll have this other we'll have a phone phone. we'll have a third phone devoted exclusively to letting us know when our kids diaper is wet because apparently no one knew how to do this before smartphones were invented right it was just so there was that and i saw apps for you know oh here's here's an app that pings you to let you know when you're running low on milk and this way it sends a reminder to someone to pick up milk on the way home and i said well great does it send a reminder to all the phones in the household can you link this one Sensor mat to all. No, once again, it's a one to one relationship between phone and mat. And I thought to myself, households tend to run successfully when both partners in the household have a moderately fluid understanding of responsibility. Mm-hmm. As in, if you were the person who put the dishes in the sink, mayhap you wash them. Or if you are the person who drank the last of the milk, you stop by Trader Joe's to pick up some more on the way home. Mm-hmm. If you automate a house with all of these sensors and you tie them to one person's phone, you are actually increasing their household labor because they have to do the cognitive labor of getting back on track after they've been interrupted, number one. Then they have to do the cognitive and emotional labor of reassigning domestic tasks if they're not going to take them all on. And then they also have to do the logistic labor of setting up, maintaining all of these different apps that do not work together and do not provide a one world dashboard. Mm -hmm. So what you've effectively done is you've offloaded all of your labor onto somebody else. If you're a dude, because you're like, oh, my girlfriend just has an app that lets us know we have to pick up milk. And she's got the app for changing the baby's diaper. And she's got the app that tells us who's been in and out of the house. And I thought, you know, you're installing a technological framework that actually makes division of domestic labor much more rigid. Mm -hmm. And it discourages an egalitarian back and forth flow because it doesn't set up a tool and a framework for people to use it that way. Yeah, that's... um fascinating and frustrating yeah Um, because everyone every one of these people who who had the apps were young and male and they were like well it's a roommate type situation i was like well a roommate situation i can almost see because that's usually several people living in parallel for a pretty limited time like i lived in a group house with four other people when i was in my 20s and although we'd occasionally cook meals together or occasionally go out and do stuff it was widely understood that we were just five people living under a roof and you know still this is actually still back in an era where one of us was nice enough to highlight all of the different phone calls people made on long distance so that we could pay our part wow yeah but you know that that's one model but these aren't being marketed to people who have roommates these are being marketed to households period 
And again, you know, one of the biggest time management areas that women in a lot of Western societies typically have to deal with is the fact that they are on the hook for more domestic labor yep. and that the key for them thriving both at work and in their relationships is if they have a partner whose approach to domestic labor is both egalitarian and fluid. There is nothing in IOT land right now that, that, that empowers or encourages that approach. Right. We'll get back to the episode in just a minute, but I wanted to take some time to let you know about this week's sponsor, Martian Craft. Martian Craft is behind some of the most prominent software in the App Store, but what you may not know is they offer a wide variety of training. They have classes to accommodate everyone from entry level to senior iOS developers who are seeking to amplify their skills or improve collaborative problem solving. Now, they have classes ranging from introduction to Swift or Objective-C to even brainstorming. You can learn so much from them. And the cool part is that they come to you. You don't have to go to them or watch courses online. Fortune 500 companies rely on Martian Craft to make their teams and software even better. Find out for yourself why they're the right choice for your company by going to martiancraft.com training to learn more. Thanks to Martian Craft for sponsoring Less Than or Equal and all of Relay FM. So Justin and I kind of have tasks that we do, but it's mostly systems that we've worked out over time. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's not, I mean, we add things to a shopping list that, that we both mm -hmm. get. And then one of us goes to this, when one of us is at a store, then we mm -hmm. get the things on the list and it's not. Yeah. We text each other grocery lists. And, and that's how we do it is who's ever out and about is, hey, I'm passing by Trader Joe's. What do we need? And the person will text back and say, oh, give me five things. Right. And we actually use Google Docs a lot because, um, you know, we have um, we, we tend to buy our meat from local farms. We buy it in bulk once a year. We freeze it and we use it that way. And so to keep track of what we have, we actually have like a we actually have a freezer spreadsheet that we are both responsible for updating and checking in with each other on. So like between that and texting for both meal plans and shopping, that's fine. But again, it's back and forth because I also manage our, our, our vegetable CSA. Like every week I get to go and pick out what I want. And so when I'm doing that, I'll text my husband and say, hey, you know, this week they've got a case of strawberries on special. I want to buy them so I can make jam. You know, can you take the daughter for a couple hours this weekend so I can do that? Mm -hmm. But the thing is, we got to pick our own tools. We got to use them in a way that works for our communication. Right. It evolved over time. And when you have a model where it's device tagged to one specific phone with a proprietary siloed app, yep. you are effectively being forced to, to work the way someone else thinks you ought to. Yep. And that brings me to the second of my, I want to say three or four big complaints. <laughs> <laughs> but the second big complaint is you do have all these different proprietary apps. And on one hand, that's great because if indeed someone does decide to hack your nest, then they're not also getting into the app that you're using to manage your water supply. And they're not getting into the app that you use to manage your groceries. So right. your entire household doesn't become hostage to some vindictive terrorist, which is, you know, hooray. Right. But at the same time, it's a terrible user experience. It chews up a lot of resources on a phone or it chews up a lot of, you know, and I did talk to a company that's making a dashboard with the idea that you could have all of your apps in one place. There was a web-based interface, but then it turns into a permissions issue because right. like by day four of CES, I was practically barking, can more than one person use it? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then these, these very sweet Canadians were like, of course, why wouldn't they? <laughs> um, 
Oh, Canada. You're truly the best of us. Yeah. And they were like, well, yeah, more than one user can use it, but you still have a primary administrator who determines everyone else's permissions. And, and But the drawback to that dashboard approach was you have one company who is the gatekeeper for all of your accounts. So if they get hacked, you're screwed. Yep. <laughs> and that's the thing is IoT increases the... Um, I have a hard time seeing where a lot of the payoff is relative to the risks and the amount of incremental labor you have to do to keep it up. Yeah, me too. Well, kind of like what you were saying with the diaper, you know, like mm-hmm. humans have been around for for many thousands of years, many, many, many thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And we've done okay without having a thing in a diaper to tell a parent when to change it. Like I can see cases for it, like children with very sensitive skin who you need to change their diaper immediately. Like I get that there's Mm -hmm. a place for it, but you know, for most of these things, it feels like they're solving. They're not solving a problem. Yeah. They're solving problems that don't exist. They're making problems to solve to sell a thing, you know? Like the way I can see the diaper sensor making sense, as it were, <laughs> is if you're in a, if you have a hospital where you've got multiple babies in a nursery and the nurses have to change. But again, you're all, that goes back to the, 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 the condition of a distributed workforce. You're going to have more than one nurse assigned to those babies. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be one nurse who then has to drop whatever she doing, she's doing to go change a diaper. It should be whichever nurse ha- is able to respond. So I, I can see that being valuable or, you know, a similar use case model would be in a convalescent home or, you know, a home for extreme people in extreme old age. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have sensors there because older people are vulnerable to bed sores if they're in soiled linens for too long. But again, distributed workforce, how do you solve that problem? Right. How do you and, and make it more efficient? Um, I think that there might be a mindset among a lot of IoT people that, well, there's these great efficiencies in manufacturing. Or these, there's these great efficiencies in commercial contexts. Why can't we bring that into the home? You know, look, I get the idea. Like, for for all that, that people love domestic hobbies, and, and, you know, that's a whole separate subject by itself. Like, you know, I get that people want to streamline their domestic labor, but at the same time, it's not going to do you any good if it's actually hurting your human relationships. Yes. <laughs> or if it's setting up an untenable, you know, situation with your partner or with your kids. Um, you know, cause the thing number three that, that gets me is I keep asking myself what it's going to be like. Cause there were a lot of IOT things that are predicated on. You can watch what your kids are doing when you're not home, or you can make sure your teenagers are not up to hijinks. And, um, I kept asking myself, if you raise people with the expectation that that the people they love and trust to take care of them have them under constant surveillance, what kind of adults do they turn out to be? Yep. Like, what do they accept from their government in terms of, of civil liberties and privacy? Or what kind of boundaries do they have regarding um, personal relationships? Yep. So, you know, there's that sci-fi dystopia aspect which brought me to my fourth complaint, which um, came into horrifying and crystal clear focus when I was talking to an IoT vendor who does smart doorknobs because he was merrily saying, oh, you can always track when someone leaves or enters. You can lock people out just by changing codes on your phone. You can prevent people from leaving by locking doors and things like that. And I said, so how does somebody protect against a domestic abuser? And the guy just like went blank. And and that's what brought me to, I think, the most... um, appalling and least considered part of IOT 
is the potential it has to aid and abet abusers. Yeah. I saw, I got a press release for a smart mattress where these sensors would tell your phone if anybody was on it. And um, the first reply I got on Twitter was, oh, this way if my dog jumps on, I know. And I thought, or, you know what? Somebody looks at that app, a dog jumps on, but they assume that their wife is is off doing something they don't want her to do in the middle of the day. They come home and have a terrible scene based on bad data. Yeah. Or they use that and she takes a nap in the middle of the day because she's exhausted from being up all night with the kid. And they immediately jump to the worst case solution and it's bad for her. Like, an abuser could literally control when you sleep because they would know when you lay down or they have a surveillance system put in so they can tell there are now sensors that track your, um, that track your, that track your movement from room to room and build out a user profile based on what rooms you're in at what time of the day. And will send an email to a second party account, letting them know, Hey, this person isn't in this room at a certain type of day as is normal. Do you want to call them or do you want to call the police? Wow. And then there are also, again, the smart doors where, again, it's a one-to-one relationship between the smart technology and the device that manages it. So an abuser could easily decide to lock someone in or lock someone out. And, you know, imagine you live in a house where you are literally unable to control the rooms you go into, to control when you're able to sleep, to control when you leave or come back. And somebody has 24-7 information about all of your whereabouts. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. And all of this gets pitched to me by these smiling young men. And I am glad that they grew up in really secure environments where it would never occur to them that a parent could harm a child or one partner could harm another. But, you know, a reality is, but the thing is, that is a reality for plenty of people in this world. And, you know, technology is a wonderful force for controlling other people's actions. Yeah, I, um... We have cameras set up in our house, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in various rooms, um, just, you know, so if somebody breaks in, then, you know, we have something, you know, that we can show the police. And once very early in our relationship, Justin, um, like tried to call me and I was taking a nap or something. And so he checked the security cameras and I flipped out. (laughs) Yeah. I don't Mm -hmm. think he's ever done it since. If he has, he hasn't told me, but I freaked out. I was like, no, that's not a thing you're ever going to do again, or I will, I will rip these out. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, well, it's, it's, um, it's invasive and it's, well, the, the, the other thing I come up with, and this actually comes up with baby monitors and people who actually keep them in their children's room past babyhood and into childhood, um, and things like that is I thought to myself, these are children who are never going to be able to have any sort of sexual autonomy Mm. because imagine you're a teenager who still has a camera in their room for some reason. You can't, Oh God, I can't, here I am. I just say (laughs) terrible things on podcasts. You can't figure out what you like. Right. (laughs) How about that? Let's just go there. Right. I think that works. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, it's I, I get that there are some religions where that's prohibited and, and so on and so forth, but it's the idea that you literally have no safe space in your house to have control over your body that I find really unsettling. Yeah. Um, I find a lot of the IoT aimed at the monitoring of children to be deeply unsettling because to me it says it, it's a lot less about the child than it is about your 
need to treat them like something that you can control. And dude, that's something you work out in therapy when it comes to the wild and ungovernable nature of life and your feelings and so on and so forth. Right. But I don't think there's much of there is not much of an excuse if you have a emotionally and physically healthy, able-bodied child. There's not a whole lot of an excuse to keep them in a constant surveillance state. Yeah. And and again, so. I go back to people have been around for many thousands of years without yeah. being constantly monitored and yeah. Um. There's. There's no need to start now. Like. Yeah. I mean, I threw in the caveat about the the health because I absolutely. Do have, I have girlfriends who have severely autistic and nonverbal children, and in their cases, one of the biggest fears that my girlfriends have is they they have a and and it's not an unrealistic fear to have is they worry about um teacher abuse or caregiver abuse. Mm-hmm. Because it's a situation where their child can communicate on an iPad, but if you don't have the vocabulary for it, what are you going to say? And there's a lot of there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of potential for exploitation. And so, in cases like that, where you have a very medically or psychologically vulnerable child, I can see where you have the cameras to protect their well being when you are entrusting them to someone else's care. Yep. Like that's, that's a use case I can get behind. I agree with that. Yeah. But if it's a case where it's like, like when guys like, oh, you can check when your teenagers are cutting school and then you can call them and let them know they're in trouble and things like that. And I thought, well, you know, um, part of being a teenager is you have to figure out testing limits and assuming consequences. Like every kid has to learn how to develop judgment. And if your parents are constantly coming in and imposing external judgment and consequences for you, how are you ever going to be able to assess things for yourself? Right. Like what I want my, what I want my kid to cut school. No, but what I want them to handle the consequences if they did by getting crappy grades and bury the consequences for that. Yes. Yes, I would, because I want, I want to give them the opportunity to draw the lines from risk to payoff to liability. Yeah. Well, and that's totally, I was just having a conversation for, um, for the episode that's actually going to air before this one is, Mm -hmm. um, about how my twenties were all about royally screwing things up. And then my thirties have been about like (laughs) not repeating those mistakes. Yeah. Um, and, and it's the same. I mean, that starts when, when you're a teenager, like, Mm -hmm for the the example of missing school like I didn't go home when I ditched school like that's no. not a thing I did um my mom <laughs> wouldn't have known anyway but yeah. um but she did know when the school wrote the letter home and was like yeah Lane's missed too much school and she has to stay late to make up hours like she was well aware at that point she's like come again what no. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, you know but now one of the what also one of the handiest lessons I learned as a teenager was if you are conscientious and keep your nose clean when you do go off the reservation, the consequences are not that great for you because there was like one time when I cut school and like my, my English class nemesis like gleefully went and reported me and the English teacher looked at me and then looked at my nemesis and was like, no, she doesn't do things like that. Like despite the fact that I had and you like she told the nemesis, shut up, sit down. You don't know what you're talking well, about. And I was like, all right. <laughs> the lesson here is I can figure out how to get away with stuff. <laughs> You got it. Yeah. I kind of did the same thing though. I, yeah. I was, uh, and I think I kind of do the same thing now, to be honest, yeah. like for the most part, I, I'm pretty low key and I go with the flow and, 
um, that makes it a little bit more acceptable when I don't. Um, yeah. It doesn't. Well, yeah. I don't get away I, with everything. No. But. no, the less I was also lucky enough to have had like a rare insight that the flip side to that lesson was the people who never got the benefit of that because of the reputation mm-hmm. deserved it. And that was something I took away from it too, because it was actually a pretty powerful case of me realizing that, holy crap, people don't re- react to what's real and what's honest. They react to their perception of the situation. Exactly. So I don't want to be that person. <laughs> yeah. But it's pretty sweet not to get a demerit for this in school. <laughs> can have those thoughts when uh, you're 16 yes yeah but yeah that's um it was uh it's the the whole idea that people should be a set of data that you collect data on and you can re- and that you can act and react on it's it's not one that i think is necessarily healthy um right i think it's terrifying i do yeah and um i also think that one of the problems is right now we have all this this brings up a couple more points as we have all this data, but we're not sure how to act on it or what to do with it. So there's a lot of blind flailing. And also all of these companies have data on us and we literally have no control over how it's stored or who it's sold to, how it's aggregated or what those people are doing with the information. There's no transparency in terms of what's being collected about you, what privacy guarantees you have with these companies, what your legal rights are or any of that. Yep. You are, you are, um, you know, this is a complaint with the web at large, but it becomes especially amplified when you let these companies into your home to collect all this information on your most intimate domestic activities. You know, you you are a product. Yep. You are getting a gadget in the return. You are generating a lot of data. You have no control over any of that. And that, honestly, on top of the surveillance stuff and on top of the uh, um, potential for exploitation, like, I think this is why I'm pretty deeply negative on on the Internet of Things. Like, I just don't um, think as it's crafted now that it provides benefits that will quantitatively or qualitatively improve the lives of people who are not already fairly privileged. Right. So. Yep. All right, give me a book deal, someone. I can write all about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'd read it. Totally read that. Yeah, no, it's it was one of the bigger things I noticed at CES is um, the technologies that um, tend to be women backed are not that flashy or not that great, and they tend to be very quiet and very unglamorous. But they they tend to, but a lot of them tended to either cash in on an already established market because there were a lot of women entrepreneurs in the whole fitness wearable space or um you know they were not things where you're like so what would you do if if somebody who's controlling your movements wouldn't let you out of the house and you know right. <laughs> it was not one of those situations um my favorite was talking to the, the person who had developed uh sensor mats and basically the whole point to them was you stuck them underneath your water heater and you stuck them underneath all the pipes you were worried about leaking and there was an app to let you know when they leaked and she's like, look, better you know now than when you walk into a house and it's already flooded. I was just thinking, I do. We had we had a water heater rust out, mm-hmm. not an old water heater. You know, yeah. it was three years old, I think, at the point when it happened. And I that would have been really nice to have. <laughs> we had our pipe under our sink break when we went on vacation and it flooded the house. Uh, <laughs> So I was like, yeah, this is, this is something I can get. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, forgetting the milk is never going to like compare and scale of expense and inconvenience. (laughs) Like having my house flooded was. Yeah. That's the thing about these, these smart 
you know, the milk cartons or milk sensors or scales or whatever they are. Mm-hmm. And like the egg ones that tell you <sighs> when the eggs have gone bad and how many you have. And it's just like I can open the fridge and look in the carton and know. Or sniff. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's. <sighs> The problem is, is there's too much tech that, not too much, but the problem is, is there's enough bad tech that regards itself as a fix for human behavior when most good tech instead helps people control or fix their own behavior. Mm-hmm. Like tech should always be the tool. It should not be, it should not be the method of using the tool, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, for example, if your household goal is to reduce food waste, and that's a great goal, then maybe you're like, oh, this thing that tells me my eggs go bad would help me. But you know what would also help you? Buy less food. So that when you have so so that way when you are in the fridge, you're like, oh, I have this carton of eggs and I have some milk and some cheese and it lasts me for three days. Hello, omelet. Boom. You've just managed to save your milk, your cheese, your eggs, as opposed to opening up an overstuffed fridge and then saying, Well, my apple tell me when the eggs have gone bad. Yep. Or, you know. or meal planning and yeah. sitting yeah. down and figuring out what you need and, and buying yeah. those things. And yeah. yeah, it's. I mean, I get the temptation to believe that if you buy a product, it will fix a behavior problem. But all you've done is spend money and you still have the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like you said, you're, how much, how many, I don't know, seconds are you using like, oh, I have this notification. I need to deal with this notification now. Or I need to check the app to see about, you know, the eggs or the milk or whatever. And, and you're, you're just, you're wasting time. And it, I mean, it's a little bit of time, but it adds up. Well, there's, there's the cognitive load that comes from, you know, mode switching and getting interrupted too. And, um, I really don't think you can underestimate that. Um, I'm sure this is in my Evernote somewhere. I may have saved this when it happened, but there have been studies done or there was one study in particular where they took a look at a classic multitasker who was constantly switching between stuff versus somebody who was very good at just kind of, you know, siloing and working on one thing at a time. And the amount of work that they did and the amount of um, focus and energy they have to expend is sharply different. And right now we happen to be in a technological phase where constant interruption and balancing multiple sources of, 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 of interruption at once is expected. And, um, I'm curious to see when and how it will swing back the other way where you have technology that actively blocks out other stuff and that's seen as socially and, and, and professionally acceptable. But like right now, you have people who are expected to stay on top of Twitter, Slack, email, um, whatever text they're getting from their friends on their phone at the same time, FaceTime, and um, and then do their work all on top of that or drive their car or take care of their kids or whatever. And it's just, it's too, it's, it's too much work to have to do to keep switching back and forth mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason I'm off Twitter three days a week now. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. I'm pretty much off Friday through Sunday these days. I mean, I'll pop on occasionally or I'll pre-schedule tweets since um, I'm now writing on talk show, but, um, you know, for, for different shows. But uh, I try to stay off of Twitter three days a week, and then I'm trying to stay off of Facebook on weekends as well, just so I can, you know, clear out that kind of clutter and not be distracted by it. Yeah, I've started, I used to be a very, um, I want to say militant, but that's, that's a strong word that I don't want to use. But I Mm -hmm. used to be very, very 
um, meticulous about making sure that I read every tweet in my timeline. Oh my gosh. And then something <laughs> happened and like, I always try to do this balancing act like, okay, I'm, I'm getting too many. So like I turn off retweets for this person and maybe I mute this person for a little while and like, mm -hmm. um, I unfollow them or whatever. And I try to do something, things to control the volume. And then something happened in January and something broke inside of me. And it was <laughs> like, I'm not doing this anymore. And so I'd be like, okay, I'm scrolling to the top. So I, you know, I only, I mostly only read Twitter on my phone. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like I load it, I scroll to the top, I read like 50 tweets and then I leave it. And then I, I do that again because I mean, it was, I was spending so much time doing it and I was unhappy because yeah. I follow so many people who tweet about, um, injustice and problems with the world. And I completely like, it's valuable. I need to read that, but it was really, really bringing me down. And like, just emotionally, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I found that with Facebook. I was like, well, I could keep up with people and like things and, and so on and so forth. Or I could, you know, have a weekend. Right. Where I go hike. Like, um, last, two weekends ago, we went out to, a, where Phil and I are testing, um, these things called gotennas. And the idea is that they turn your phones into walkie talkies in areas where you have no reception. The person who did this originally did because she and her friends like to go to music festivals and trying to find somebody at a music festival was exacerbated, exacerbated by the fact that you often have no reception in these mm -hmm. areas. So she was like, I'm going to invent a walkie talkie. So my friends and I can each have our little gotenna tag in our phone. And this way we can, you know, send each other text messages and meet up that way, which, you know, makes sense. And it also assumes that you and your friends are not, you know, tripping balls, but <laughs> that's a different use case. So anyway, long story short, Phil and I drove down the beautiful California coast and we tested these at a couple different beaches. But what was really nice was we just spent like six hours at these really gorgeous beaches. You know, we hiked up and down cliffs with our daughter. We played in tide pools. There was a little lagoon that we went wading in. We threw... Uh, you know, driftwood into estuaries to see if it would float out to the sea or if the sea would keep bringing it back up on the shore. And we played that game for an hour. And it was just this really great, really present day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, I'm going to do a lot more of that. Yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting a lot more of it than I am out of one more person I know from college or grad school stroking out over Hillary Clinton or Bernie, or Bernie right now. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm getting all the benefits of being outside, which is supposed to be good for your brain because, you know, we or hunter gatherers of the savannah, whatever. And um, it's also just a relief not to have to do that cognitive and emotional labor. It's a lot. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it totally yeah. is. And with Twitter, I'm I actually, I'm exactly the opposite from you. I don't read it at all on my phone. I prefer to read it on TweetDeck because I have my follow list broken down into um, categories and hierarchies of, you know, people whose tweets I'm always going to read, people I just follow to be polite and will never read, things like that. <laughs> And so with TweetDeck, I feel like the, the, the information firehose is a little bit more manageable. But again, it's still something where, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's always on. There's just too much of it. You're never going to get a handle on it. And so I just regard it as something that's fun to dip in and out of every so often. I find it really useful for live events now, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. So we're at about an hour, so I feel yeah. like we need to pick between, are, are we going to talk like My Little Pony and Steven Universe, or are we going to go journalism? Let's talk My Little Pony and Steven Universe. Okay. 
Okay. So My Little Pony is mm-hmm. amazing and you will not convince me otherwise, anybody. So No, no. <laughs> my daughter is really into it now. Um, uh, my daughter is five. She'll be six um, in the fall and she's really into it. And um, we do it. Basically, the way we treat screen time in our house is it's always something you do with somebody. And we are also big believers in talking back to the TV <laughs> or interacting with the app and saying, oh, it's made you do this. Why do you think it did that? Or, oh, it made you do that. Why did it make that choice, do you think? And Because we're, we're hoping to raise somebody who's a critical media consumer. Mm-hmm. And we're also hoping to... Um, give her the expectation that mom and dad will always be mom and dad have final say over her, her, her screen activity. Like that's just, that's just a a parenting boundary I'm really comfortable with. So long story short, my daughter watches two different TV programs. One of which is the odious princess Sophia. Um, I hate that program. We're not talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The other one is my little pony friendship is magic. Mm -hmm. And I am, I, I really surprised myself by how much I enjoyed it. It is good. They have John Delancey voicing one of the characters. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you know, they have it, all these different, they have all these different jokes. They're aimed at adults. It's, it's, um, and what I really enjoy is it's basically a program that's given, that's, that's trying to teach children emotional literacy. Yeah, it totally is. And, um, it's, <sighs> Gosh, where do I start? It's not, yeah, it's not just a show for kids. No. It's got Star Trek references and Star Wars references. It's, I mean, it's a show for nerds. It's a show for like adults. I mean, there are some, there are some kind of not, I wouldn't say body references in there, but there are definitely some references in there that um, should go above some kids' heads sometimes. And, um, and I don't know, I feel like they just do it so well. And they have a variety of characters with a variety of personalities and they, they all get along. There's no hierarchy. There's no judging. Like, I can remember watching Scooby-Doo when I was growing up and being really irritated that Velma was supposed to be played as the undesirable female mm-hmm. trope, as opposed to Daphne. Daphne was dumb and afraid and went off with boring old Fred. Velma was a nerd and got stuck with stupid sp- Scooby and Shaggy and I remember being infuriated by that when I was a kid um or you know you there's there's you know and to be fair My Little Pony is formulaic but what I really enjoy is it doesn't um valorize or prioritize different performances of femininity Mm -hmm. um because for for people who are listening to this and are not familiar with My Little Pony um there, there's what they call the quote unquote the main six, spelled M A N E because puns. And um, among them, you've got the very bookish Twilight Sparkle. You've got the hardworking, pragmatic um, Applejack. You've got the exuberant party thrower Pinkie Pie. Um, you've got the very tomboyish. Um, some of my friends are like, she's counted as a dyke. <laughs> And they, they've adopted You've got Rainbow Dash. She's very competitive and very tomboyish and not in touch with her own feelings, much less with anybody else's. Um, you've got the very non-assertive um, and very self-contained Fluttershy. And then you have um, the the very refined and um, the very refined aesthete um, rarity. Mm-hmm. And what I really liked about this show is that none of 
like it's really good about pointing out both the benefits and the drawbacks to everybody's behavior because mm-hmm. you know with rainbow dash there would be some types of girls play where they're like girls can do anything and girls are strong and that's great but it also points out that when rainbow dash tries to be tough she ignores other people's feelings that produces consequences she doesn't like her friends are kind enough to explain it to her we all learn lessons right or you have somebody like Fluttershy who's very self-deprecating and very um, collaborative and very uncomfortable with confrontation. And the show's been very frank in talking about how this makes life hard for her sometimes. Um, but it's also been very good about pointing out um, the ways in which her ability to um, draw people into empathy with her is, is a great way to diffuse tensions and things like that. And what I like is that Rarity is the character who really loves beautiful things. Like that's her whole jam is mm-hmm. she loves beautiful things and she loves being pretty and that's not put down. And the reason I think that's important is because there's been a real um, sentiment percolating through, especially young girls entertainment that pink is terrible. Pink is stereotypical. Uh, no girls deserve better. But like, Little girls love pink. Little girls love twirly stuff. Um, I am currently living in an area, and I have a group of friends, where everyone read the Peggy Orenstein's Cinderella Ate My Daughter story, and um, everybody has a horror of princess culture, and everybody's been raising their daughter under the assumption that, oh, you can do anything, and they're all very feminist. And, like, a switch flipped when all of our kids turned three, and all of a sudden, it was all twirly dresses. They began calling... <laughs> no, seriously. I like, like twirly it- dresses. Oh, oh, yeah, right? They all, they, like, a switch flipped. The twirlier, the better. The sparklier, the things were, the better. If it was pink, it was wonderful. Um, they were all princesses, and they would play together, you know, uh, eight princesses co-ruling a kingdom. They were totally fine with it. And I'm like, oh, my God, medieval Italy could learn from you. Um, <laughs> and so what I like about My Little Pony is they are they don't shame or stigmatize little girls who like pretty things. Yeah. And I think that's just as important as, as, you know, also saying to little girls who are tomboys or little girls who are bookish or little girls who um, are, are, you know, very matter of fact, take care of business little girls, you know, hey, the way you are is great. People will like you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's why it's been like nerd culture has really, mm-hmm. has really grasped onto it. And we have yeah. like the all of these adults all of these geeky adults especially who love my little ponies because it kind of um it kind of gives us permission to to express and be who we are because Mm -hmm. i don't know it's not a message i really received a lot when i was growing up um i always felt and i still struggle with feeling very different from everybody else and wondering like Mm -hmm. you know do do i fit here even in even in spaces where I'm pretty sure I do, I always kind of wonder, you know, and it's nice to see an example of kind of that unconditional friendship and like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you messed up. um, So what did you learn? You know, and that's kind of every episode, I think pretty much goes through like this arc where it's like, you know, there's, there's whatever the plot point is and Mm -hmm. someone maybe reacts badly to it. And at the end it's like, all right, so what did you learn from this? And I really, I like that. I think a lot of people do. Yeah. I like that the girls don't compete. I like that it's not competitive femininity Mm -hmm. um, because going back to, again, a lot of the stuff that I grew up with as a kid in the seventies and the eighties, I mean, 
even with Josie and the Pussycats, it was Josie versus, um, oh God, what was her name? Um, I don't know. Yeah, she's got, what was her name? I don't know. She had like black hair and a white stripe down the middle, like a skunk, of course. Um, uh. <laughs> but, you know, Josie's primary antagonist was female. Um, when somebody handed me Archie comics, I was kind of horrified that Betty and Veronica were wasting their time competing over Archie instead of being friends with each other because I couldn't see what the big deal was about Archie. Um, and so what I really love about this is there's, if the girls are in competition, it's because they're competing on a field where they're racing or they're doing magic or something. It's never, they're competing for social capital or they're competing for a dude or something like that. Like that never happens. You've got this model of um, positive female support. And my hope is that this is something that the little girls are going to internalize and expect as the norm. And maybe, you know, maybe with luck that carries them a little bit through elementary school before things get weird and tribal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, I think that's another reason to really like My Little Pony is because it points out the most positive parts of having, you know, a group of people that support, or horses in this case, that support you. Um, the area I'm still ambivalent on, and I would love to hear your take on it, mm-hmm. is it's coded as so aggressively feminine. Like, the palette is very pastel and Lisa Frank-like, and um, the standard of beauty is is so very feminine with the long flowing hair and the big doe eyes, and um, they have the little cutie marks. And I can't figure out if this is kind of like a performance of what's marketable or if this is them genuinely being like, yeah, this is what sells. So we're, we're absolutely into these standards. Um, I I don't know. I, I have a feeling since it's still like a Hasbro property that there's very much, uh, a play into the gender normative things. So, you know, like, market researcher we think that this is what will sell so you need to stick to these things i'm sure plays a part so i don't know how much you know the writers and and animators like how much choice they have in that kind of thing and how much is handed down to them mm-hmm. but i i think i kind of think that they try to combat maybe combat isn't the right word or maybe counteract that um by mm-hmm by the the writing and themes in the show um but i could definitely see it being like oh yeah no this is these are the guidelines that you have in terms of like art direction and that kind of thing yeah when they had the episode about them getting sucked into the comic book and becoming comic book heroes my cynical thought was oh good it's another six my little pony figures i have to buy (laughs) (laughs) Because they look different than the main one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or they have them dressed up for the grand gala, big gala or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, and the same thing with like Equestria Girls, the the movie, (sighs) which I have not watched, is it was like, (laughs) oh, well, here horse Barbies. That's really weird. They needed to sell more toys or wanted to sell more toys. I really am just like, I, I watched it and remember I was like screenshotting it and sending yeah. it to the Slack room to horrify everyone. What is this? Yeah. Um, it's, it looks like the first, because I had seen Equestria Girls before I even saw My Little Ponies because a baby Stravaris brought over a doll that had been stuck in her bag and she's like, get a load of this. And I was like, oh! and then we put it back in the bag and that was it. Um, <laughs> but uh, when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, this is like, like usually you see this stuff on the internet and it's X-ray. Right. <laughs> Cause it's really, it's very fetishy. Um, 
like there are a lot of things that seem to like visually indicate that it should be fetish instead because you've got short um, skirts and the incredibly short skirts, the clumpy, like it's because there are people who are totally into that like hybrid person animal thing, and this is absolutely coded for that. And then when you stick the te- the tail and the ears on, I'm like, I think there, I, I've, I'm sure there's like hentai about this. Yeah. <laughs> And I was kind of uncomfortable seeing that aesthetic um, push towards a child's market, Um, even though there were parts of the movie that, objectively speaking, could have been kind of interesting, like a horse gets turned into a human and her first reaction, like, actually, she had 10 minutes where she's like, this is horrifying, I'm hideous, what do I do with these hands? Like, she was completely uncoordinated, she had no, like, nothing felt comfortable, and I thought, wow, this is a really great lesson in, in body horror, perhaps this is almost puberty, but... Then again, you're like, oh, it's puberty as seen through the filter of a Japanese hentai sex doll. Ho! Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my there's a reason I watched that movie on my Netflix account, not my daughter's. <laughs> I don't want her knowing it's there. Yeah. I, yeah. I just, mm-hmm. I'm like, a- a- Applejack would not wear a skirt like that. That is totally yeah. impractical, no. impractical for, for harvesting apples. And it, it's just... Uh, the um do not the one thing i can think is this has been i remember reading the wall street journal about a decade ago and they've obviously solved the problem since but the problem disney used to have was they were like how can we keep girls strongly invested in the brand after they grow out of the dolls stage because you know they they get the girls when they're young with the disney princesses but sooner or later girls outgrow that and at the time the wall street uh the wall street Journal reported at the time they're like well we're going to position tinkerbell and her friends as the tween bridge bridge building brand and you know, spin them off as fiction and market stuff that seems slightly more sophisticated so that girls are very excited about graduating from Disney princess to these fairies that are independent and have adventures and things like that. And then when they're teenagers and adults, you get them in, you know, other ways like, Oh, you get to go to a park by yourself. And now Disney weddings are a huge business mm-hmm. um, as are Disney marathons and Disney races. Like, it's bearing fruit because there are people who have grown up their whole life with this really positive Disney association. And so for them, it's not this is the thing of childhood I have to put away. And since this is the trusted brand that I've had since babyhood. And so my, my cynical thought is that Equestria Girls is supposed to be what they want little girls to get into after they've grown out of the playing with ponies, pretending your ponies stage. Like Equestria Girls is where these girls can model the social play of what they expect junior high and high school to be like. And then I guess they're hoping that that's how they transition them into being, you know, high school kids who buy bracelets that are coded for your favorite pony or notebooks or what have you, or apps. Um, so so maybe that's it. Maybe that's why they exist. And it's not just some pervert and Hasbro is like, I really love this stuff. <laughs> it's so wrong. I like it a lot. Influence. Yeah. So maybe it's maybe it's a chance to try to build the same kind of lifelong association brand. I'm um, I'm sure that's probably yeah. a lot of it it's just it seems like the path is more straightforward for little boys because they go from action figures and legos to immersive video games right and then more expensive toys um so 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 maybe maybe that's a little bit smoother and um because their their toys tend not to be so sexualized it doesn't seem like as much of a problem and we kind of accept the whole oh of course they've become star wars fans at age three why wouldn't they be star wars fans their whole life right 
If only girls were capable of liking Star Wars and video games, it'd be so much easier for these companies. If only. Yeah. <laughs> if only. No, my daughter likes Star Wars too. Uh, she yeah. does. Her biggest her biggest complaint is there aren't enough girls in Star Wars. I totally agree with her. Oh, me too. Totally me agree. Too. Yeah, I um I don't know. I I don't know. Equestria Girls is is but I can totally see that like, oh, we need we at least we need to get these these young girls thinking about teenagehood and what that looks yeah. like. And why not do that through the lens of these ponies? And then, yeah, that that buy in hadn't even occurred to me because um, a lot of the social plays that get older shifts from I'm a pony and I can fly to I'm a high, I'm a teenager and I can do XYZ like little you know girls who are in fourth or fifth grade really look forward to being older yeah like that you know they're they're definitely I remember and they're, and they're so happy you know because you know they're the ones who drove the sales of the Twilight books they were so happy to be able to read about a high school romance and, and stuff like that um you know they're the ones who drove the stale sales of Forever by Judy Bloom she's probably has like a mansion based on that book <laughs> but um you know, you have, they still like to play with toys. You know, most of the girls I grew up with kept their Barbies in a box under their bed, like through high school. They may have stopped playing with them around eighth grade, but even in middle school, I can remember that we would take them out and play with them from time to time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is, this is somebody who grew up in the same era saying, well, this is what kids do. Let's capitalize on it. Yep. <laughs> So Steven Universe, let me mm-hmm. let me segue yes. inelegantly. But Steven U- Universe is um is another one of the it's smart, it's mm-hmm. funny, it's got it centers around a, a young boy um who is basically being raised by three I would I would say three foster mothers would be a way to put it um slash mentors um his dad is involved but kind of on the periphery um they have a good relationship but he's not super active in raising Stephen um Mm -hmm. and and it's got some magic and it's definitely got these themes kind of like My Little Pony it's got these themes of friendship and like Stephen is this really really sweet sensitive little boy who um he believes in people and like he he gives everybody the benefit of the doubt and it's um it, it's got these amazing themes um i actually started watching it because so many of my transgender friends liked it mm-hmm. and there comes this tipping point where you see completely why that would make sense um and i won't say anything to spoil it but it's just mm-hmm. it and it's just done so so well and it's so beautiful where can i watch it um i think you can watch it on netflix at least oh, got to check let mm-hmm. me see um at least the first couple of seasons um mm-hmm. uh yeah and um i mean i it's just got so many amazing themes i definitely definitely encourage everybody to go watch it and it's just it's it's smart it's well done and um you know my favorite character, I've said this on the show before, my favorite character is named Garnet. My computer is named Garnet oh, after I love her. Garnet's are so pretty. And, mm-hmm. and Garnet is amazing um, mm-hmm. for reasons that are revealed kind of season two-ish is really when it comes comes down to it. But what I really, really super love is um, he's being raised by these three they're women warriors. They're they're mm-hmm. they're warriors. And um and kind of the way that they go about 
loving him and raising him and teaching him in their own mm-hmm. way is so sweet. And um, it's it's so neat to see. Mm-hmm. I should have prepared a, a written statement so I could encapsulate all of it. But no, I'm, um, I'm looking forward to trying it out. I, I really, really, really love it. I, 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 yeah. So anyone who's interested, and the episodes are like that 22 minute episode thing where they split mm-hmm. it in half. Um, so it's, it's easy to consume, you know, oh, I need, I need a 15 minute break so you can watch half of, half of an episode. Um, but yeah, I, um, Steven Universe, I think is wonderful. And I think it's a great social commentary and, um, uh, just beautiful. <laughs> Excellent. We will, we will definitely check it out then. Cause, uh, if we can get Princess Sophia's rotation reduced, that would be ah. great. Oh, I hate that show so much. (laughs) (laughs) Disney! Yeah. (laughs) So we missed a topic, but is there anything else that that you wanted to bring up today? No. um, I think after I foamed at the mouth over Internet of Things. (laughs) I like it, though, because... Yeah, I'm going to get drummed out of the business for being a Luddite. And that's not true. I just feel like we need to report on technology with a little bit more of a critical eye and a little bit less of a product stats recitation. Yeah. And I think it's good to critically examine why, Mm -hmm. why does a thing exist? Yeah. You know, like there's, there's technology remote. There are people who are like, I have a remote car starter from my phone. And at first I was like, really? And then somebody from Minnesota pointed it out. And then I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah. Um, Cause they were like, I have two small kids and I don't want to have to worry about the temperature of my newborn baby. If I'm starting a car, I want to be able to just start, have the car start and warm up and then bundle the kids in when the wind is blowing. So like, you know, when someone can explain why they're using a technology in a way that improves their lives and the lives of the people they love. Great. I'm all for it. <laughs> But, you know, you also have to ex- examine what using the technology is doing to you and the people around you, too. So, yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Well, Lisa, how can people find you online? Uh, you know, I was going to say on Twitter, which no. I'm not. <laughs> no, you can find me on Twitter, um, which is the tag Elschmeiser, which is L-S-C-H-M-E-I-S-E-R. And usually on Twitter, I'll point to podcasts I've done on The Incomparable. I'll point to things I've written. Um, that's probably the best place for now. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or like to be a guest, please go to relay.fm slash LTOE and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes, it helps people learn about the show and help them know that the show is good to listen to um, and not awful. That would be wonderful. <laughs> And we'd like to thank this week's sponsor, Martian Craft. Thank you so much uh, for sponsoring Less Than or Equal in Relay FM. And thank you, dear listener, for listening. Until next time, on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.